Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. The first scientific paper on the clinical features of patients infected with what came to be known as COVID-19 was published in The Lancet, launching that famed medical journal's prominent role in COVID research, which has maintained throughout the pandemic. But being an influential force in science and medicine is nothing new to this nearly 200-year-old publication published by Osmosis's parent company, Elsevier. And we're going to explore that role today with its editor-in-chief, Dr. Richard Horton. A physician by training with a three-decade career in publishing, Dr. Horton himself has often been described as a global force in science and medicine, leading to many recognitions and honors, including the 2021 Physicians for Human Rights Award presented by Dr. Anthony Fauci for, quote, working to bring evidence-based and rights-based solutions to the global COVID-19 response. So, Dr. Horton, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, and thank you to our CEO, Kumsal Bayezid, for putting us in touch. Thank you, Shiv, and yes, indeed, thanks to Kumsal. And so, we often like asking our guests, in their own words, to talk about their background, what got them interested in pursuing a career in medicine in the first place. I know our audience would be very excited to hear this, having so many people who are current and future clinicians who obviously read and are familiar with The Lancet. Well, <laughs> that's yeah, that's going back a few decades now, Shiv. Um, but our system in Britain, unlike yours, is very unforgiving because we have to make a choice early on in our school careers between science and the humanities. And I found this a horrible, horrible choice to make. I loved English literature. And I loved writing and I loved reading novels and thinking and talking about novels. Um, but I also loved experimental science and particularly biology and chemistry. And we have this, this terrible, terrible decision at the age of 16, which is awful. You know, you're nothing at 16 and you have to decide, am I going to go down the humanities route or am I going to be a scientist so at the age of 16 I opted for science I have no regrets about that choice I, I love science and I love choosing medicine as a career which allowed the application of science in the human setting in a way that uh, no other discipline I could see would, would allow me to pursue but there was this lingering love of literature and writing which eventually got the better of me. And so uh, I had to do something that involved the written word. And um, that's what led me off the straight and narrow path into The Lancet. Well, that's really interesting. And I'm glad you brought that up because so many of our audience feel this artificial pressure to choose and become a, a physician of some sort early on. You know, there's these six-year program straight out of high school in the U.S. too, called BSMD programs. Uh, and I think maybe growing up watching people like Doogie Hauser, you feel like it'd be very cool to be an 18-year-old doctor. <laughs> but, you know, I think patients often benefit from clinicians who have a little more experience or are able to draw connections between different fields. Is that how you felt as well? Absolutely. I mean, I remember decades ago now going to NIH and interviewing Harold Barmas for The Lancet. And in the profile that I, I wrote about him, you know, one of the things he said to me was that here he was, this Nobel Prize winning scientist, head of NIH, but 
actually one of the things he was most proud of uh, was the fact that he did a major in poetry Hmm. um, when he was at university. And I think that having that broader scholarly background enables you to have insights into not just the science, but people, the history, the diversity of, of people that you come across. You know, numbers are important, clearly, in science, but also you need to be able to think about concepts and interpretation and some of that conceptual agility that you need in science can actually come from analyzing a text in a different discipline, thinking about a historical pattern in a way that you might not think about a particular scientific pattern. So I think there are many skills from many disciplines that can come together. And trying to separate those off too early in somebody's life, that's a loss. And so try and keep them together as long as possible would be my hope. Certainly. And there's obviously people who've managed to very successfully combine those loves like yourself, which we'll get into your Lancet career at the Lancet, as well as people like Lisa Sanders, who's the um, head of the diagnosis column for the New York Times. And her story was non-traditional. She was a journalist who became a medical student at Yale and then, you know, has obviously had a very fulfilling career at that intersection. So, you know, can you talk to us a bit about your own kind of evolution at The Lancet? Uh, How did you start and now, you know, become editor-in-chief? And what have you been most proud of over that course of, uh, of several decades? Well, I didn't actually plan to stay at The Lancet. Um, I was actually starting a PhD in London at a teaching hospital, the Royal Free Hospital. And I wanted to become an academic hepatologist. And I did, and I still think the liver is the most fascinating and interesting organ in the human body. But I had this lingering feeling that I wanted to try something that involved a written word. As I say, I love science and medicine, but I also love literature and politics. And so I wanted to find a way of mixing these things. And The Lancet, I had started to subscribe to The Lancet as a medical student, and could see that it it had this mix of science, medicine, politics, and so on. There was this job that was advertised, and i I was actually in a <laughs> I was actually in an English pub at the time, um, and was with some friends, and we'd had a few drinks, and I was saying, "Oh, you know, should I go for this job or not? Should I try it?" And I actually called up what I found out later to be the deputy editor at the Lancet from the pub. Um, and said, uh, could I apply for the job? <laughs> and God knows what he must have thought, because he would have been hearing behind me, you know, people saying, oh, three pints of lager <laughs> and a packet of crisps, please, um, while I'm, I'm trying to have this sensible conversation about changing career paths. Well, anyway, to cut a long story short, I applied for the job, got it for six months, and then stayed for 30 years. So (laughs) (laughs) go figure. (laughs) Actually, it's funny. I I would argue that you being in that pub probably made you more human, made you someone like, oh, I could could see myself working with this person. They have a personality. And and obviously, a lot of great people have have made amazing decisions in English pubs. I'm thinking back to, obviously, (laughs) the most famous, I believe, well, Watson and Crick, but also um, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis and um, and J.R. Tolkien, right? the eagle and the child but uh, i hadn't thought of it like that but yes 
that's true. All the crazy decisions people made in English pubs, somebody <laughs> needs to write a book about that. <laughs> I'm sure that's already been written probably from somebody in a pub. Um, but uh, yeah, so 30 years at The Lancet, it's, it's obviously grown a lot under your leadership. What does that look like? There's over 20 journals The Lancet represents now. Mm. Can you give us a sense of scale and reach of the publications? Well, it is funny looking back because... When I joined The Lancet, it was this tiny little cottage industry operation. And we all sat in this. I mean, honestly, it was Dickensian. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember we weren't supposed to have personal phone calls at work. And if you if you did have a person, because we didn't have mobile phones when I started, we didn't even have computers. Um, and I can remember somebody called me up. And I wasn't on the call longer than a minute or two, but the deputy editor, the guy I'd spoken to from the pub, was sitting behind me in this open office. And because my personal call had gone on longer than about a minute, he started tapping the table behind me. I mean, you know, honestly, that was Charles Dickens. It was, <laughs> it was kind of bizarre to think that we existed in an environment like that. And now... I'm sitting here in our London Wall offices. Um, well, we don't come to work anymore, do we? We all work remotely. Um, but yes, it's changed dramatically. We had one journal 30 years ago. We now have 24 journals. We had about, I don't know, a staff of no more than 30. Now we have a staff of over 200. And the reach of The Lancet has become truly global in a way that we weren't before. We were rather a quaint English scientific medical journal, and now we're very much a global operation. Um, I think what I'm proudest of is two things. Firstly, expanding the number of journals at The Lancet to diversify our content, um, building the organization we have today. But I, I think the other piece that I'm probably even more proud of than that is the vision or the idea that I, I had when I first joined the journal. And that is that science can be an enormously powerful force for social good. And we might talk about that more. I always wanted The Lancet to be not just a campaigning journal, but the work that we published to have some sort of social purpose, not just publishing for the sake of publishing. And, you know, in a small way, we've managed to achieve that objective. And I hope that will continue. Yeah, and that's uh, obviously continuing a great legacy of the intersection of science and, and change, some of which is inevitable once something is discovered or invented. The cat is out of the bag, as we often say, and you can't unsee it. The other is, you know, obviously greats like Linus Pauling, who not only won a Nobel Prize for chemistry, actually, and then he won it a couple of years later again for the activism that he and many people did on nuclear disarmament. Um, so I'm curious, like, what are some of those kind of highlights? There's been a lot of social activism over the past several years, especially during COVID, but well before that. So over 30 years, like, what are some examples of that that you, you know, want to specify? And then also, how do you strike the balance between the impartiality required to edit The Lancet, you know, as a scientific journal with the uh, mission of impacting social change? Yeah, I mean, the place I would start here, because people can sometimes, you know, it's easy to suddenly jump and think, oh, gosh, you know, 
science is all about neutrality and uh, you should be this neutral journal holding a mirror up to the scientific community and it's not your role to to be political. And sometimes where we've got into controversies in the past, that's what people say, science should not be political, it shouldn't engage in these kinds of activities. But I think that's a misreading of the history of science. If you go back to the Enlightenment, and you go back actually to Diderot's encyclopedia, the first time that some of human knowledge was put together into a, a single document. Um, the introduction to Diderot's encyclopedia was by a guy called Dollenberg. And what he wrote was that the purpose of putting together knowledge into one place was not to satisfy the egos of the people who were putting knowledge together or just to produce a book to put on the shelf of a library. But the purpose of acquiring human knowledge was to advance human progress, to advance social progress. And that was the reason why there was an enlightenment. The whole point of that word is that we were supposed to be opening up the possibility of greater clarity to chart a path forward to advance the human condition. And then we created this machine of science where it was all about getting grants, getting publications, getting tenure, all of which is important, but we kind of lost the purpose of it. And so what I wanted to do was to go back to the origins of the Enlightenment and to remember that the purpose of generating knowledge was to use that knowledge as an instrument for social and political progress. And I don't find that controversial. I, it, it's what science was all about originally. So that's not about impartiality. It's, it's about, yes, I mean, in my world of medicine, it's about making sure that we work so that everybody has the right to access healthcare, the highest quality of healthcare, that there is health equity. You shouldn't have inequities in access to healthcare, and that there should be some element of social justice because the determinants of health go beyond healthcare. They are affected by the economic, social, political circumstances, the commercial determinants of health, race as a determinant of health. These are all issues that are part of our world and determine our, our health and well-being. And so you can't be impartial about those issues. You have to make a choice about what your view is of them. And then you have to apply yourself to address them. So I don't apologize for not being impartial. I would say it's the only way you can be. You have to look at the world, diagnose what the worldview is that you have, and then we use our journal to try and achieve certain objectives. You know, there have been some notable papers in the past that have got us into um, important debates. If I go back to the early 2000s, we published two papers from groups at Johns Hopkins University looking at the civilian mortality from the Iraq war. That war was initiated on a false piece of evidence. We didn't know that at the time. But what we did know was that the war was killing hundreds of thousands of civilians 
because of the way the war was being prosecuted. And it was through two papers published in The Lancet that we tried to hold the Bush government accountable for its decisions to go to war in Iraq. Now, we got into awful, an awful political fight about that work. But to me, it was a very good example of how science can hold politicians accountable for their decisions, rightly so. In more recent years, over the last 20 years, what we've tried to build up is a program of Lancet commissions where we try and take a subject that's neglected, both in the clinical arena and in uh, broader public health and global health arenas, and try and look in depth at that by bringing together the smartest academics in the world around a table. And then they work together for two years on average, and then we give them the chance to publish an extensive report, which is really uh, an investigation and then a manifesto for action Um, And those subjects have ranged from the political determinants of health through to adolescent health, through to dementia. Just this year, we've published commissions on the value of death, uh, on stigma and discrimination in mental health, on depression, on the future of child health. So I think now we've published almost 100 commissions looking at different dimensions of, of medicine and health. And To me, a commission is the perfect example of what we were talking about a moment ago, which is using science as that instrument for social progress. That's fascinating. And obviously, it takes a lot of courage to wade into this. I mean, even in our short history at Osmosis, we've seen that when we've we've uh, taken a point of view in terms of our videos, and obviously, I've done a lot around health equity, and partly why we were so comfortable joining Elsevier is that they walk the walk in terms of their commitment to this. We've inadvertently and sometimes verdantly uh, gone into firestorms, uh, everything from LGBTQ healthcare mm. to systemic racism to firearm control, which obviously is a major issue, especially here in the U.S. Mm. One of the things, and you may not know this, but we're proud, we published a short com in The Lancet some years ago on the work we did in Syria with uh, thousands of Syrian medical students, where a couple dozen of them at their three different Syrian campuses got together and translated a lot of our videos into Arabic, subtitles into Arabic. Um, and uh, two of the med students, Lamia Kuba at University of Damascus and Basil Amin at University of Tisreen, which were on opposite political, or Aleppo, of opposite political spectrums, came together, published this work on increasing access to medical student and patient education in Arabic with osmosis. And our advisor on that was Dr. Amin Azam at UC Berkeley. So. I, I can oh, see. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'll make sure to share that with you. But That's a great story, actually. And that's a, you know, that's a beautiful story uh, also um, of how science can bring communities together in a way that very few other disciplines can. And certainly, in, again, my world of medicine and health, how working together on healthcare can bring conflicting communities together in ways that sometimes other diplomatic maneuvers can't. You know, health can be a bridge for peace in a conflict, and that's a very important, uh, that's a lovely example. Yeah, actually. no, totally. I'll make, make sure to share that with you and echo some of our other guests, like uh, the General Secretary of Doctors Without Borders, would say the same thing, you know, as being a kind of a, a agent for peace and change. Mm. So, Let's go to COVID because that's actually why we launched the podcast, the Raise Line podcast. Everyone was talking about flattening the curve 
And we were obviously helping do that with patient engagement, education, public health. Right. But raising the line is how do we strengthen our healthcare system? So can you walk us through the early months of COVID and your decision to publish this paper and then the, the crazy last two and a half years that The Lancet has gone through and emerged yeah. as the leading publication uh, in that topic? Well, we'd spent a decade building up trust. Probably that's the most important word, actually. Um, but a, a network of advisors in China. And we'd seen over a decade ago that China was emerging as a scientific superpower. You know, when we looked at the number of papers being submitted from countries in the world, the United States was always the number one country. Um, the United Kingdom was second. And then a collection of mostly other European countries followed. And China was never in the top 10. But over the last 20 years, we could see that China was gradually climbing. And it was a very, it's a very, very interesting and sensitive measure of a country's developmental progress, the output of science. And for everything that people say about China today, China really wanted to engage with the world, still wants to actually, um, and engage in a predominantly English language world. And so what we were seeing was that China's output was increasing. The quality of the papers wasn't as good as we might have liked, but the volume was getting higher and higher. So we thought, well, let's go to China. So we went to China over a decade ago. We built up a good set of relationships. And then at the end of December, early January 2020, we are alerted to the fact that a number of people had fallen sick with an unidentified uh, pneumonia in Wuhan. And we immediately activated our editors in Beijing and said, what's going on? And they then contacted their contacts at the Ministry of Health, called the National Health Commission and the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences. And by the early part of January, we were aware that something very severe was happening. We had six papers submitted to us in early mid-January, which described the first clinical series of cases. Now, of course, at the time, most European governments were seeing this as something a bit like flu, um, probably not very serious, a uh, bit of a health scare, let's not overreact, and uh, everybody should keep calm. But we had the papers and we saw the severity of the illness that they were describing, that patients were falling sick very quickly with this unexplained pneumonia, that certain patients particularly those who were older with comorbidities, were being admitted to intensive care where they were getting very, very severe cytokine storms, multi-organ disease, multi-organ failure, and with complications that didn't quite fit any previously known patterns, cardiac complications, uh, for example, basically something that was extremely unpleasant with a, with a mortality that was quite frightening. And so we published these papers at the end of January, which really described the pattern of clinical disease that we were to see over the next two to three years. And I think what was so shocking to us, or certainly to me, was that despite the fact that we published these papers, 
all before the end of January. And remember that WHO issued its public health emergency of international concern at the end of January 2020. So you've got you've got six papers from The Lancet describing the severity of the cases, describing the fact that it was person-to-person transmission. And Gabriel Lung from Hong Kong, having done modeling based upon the transportation system from Wuhan, and for the first time saying that we basically were facing a global pandemic. You've got those six papers plus WHO's public health emergency. You would think that on February the 1st, 2020, the world's governments would say, oh my God, there is a crisis. We need to do something. We need to do something together and we need to act decisively to shut down this potential pandemic. What happened? Nothing happened. Nobody did a damn thing, I'm sorry to say, until certainly in in the case of the United Kingdom, March the 23rd, we then went into a lockdown. But by then, we and many other European countries had allowed thousands of separate seedings of the virus across their populations, and it was too late to turn the pandemic back. And you had political leaders, I'm afraid, like President Trump, who not only were slow to react, but actually, when the scientists and his scientific advisors realized the severity of the danger, took a completely anti-science position against the pandemic. So it wasn't just that they were slow, but they were actually resistant to what the science was saying. And I mean, you know, I hope sometime, someday, and it might not be within our lifetimes, maybe this is for historians, but these people who presided over the needless deaths of literally hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens, I hope that there's a reckoning for them, that their reputations will be reviewed in the light of their decision making because the deaths that took place did not have to take place based on what we knew in January 2020. This was an entirely preventable situation than what we've gone through over the past three years. Wow, yeah, and I think there's so much more to say and we've almost have been blunted. I mean, the public has been blunted a bit to that fact and just like uh, many other crises before, you only start seeing clearly years after the fact, uh, once once the dust settles. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are your views on things that need to be done over the next decade to prevent the next pandemic, which inevitably will happen? I mean, it seems like the pendulum has turned back again now with this recession, the war in Ukraine. People don't want to think about COVID much. Yeah. And it seems like public health funding has itself not kept up to speed, despite promises that were made in 2021 that this could never happen again. So what are your views on like some of the key things and maybe bright spots that are happening to, to prevent the next thing? Well, Shib, you're so right, aren't you? I mean, it's amazing how attention shifts very quickly. Um, and the pandemic's not over even now, but uh, the world's moved on. News media's moved on, politicians have moved on. And we're not prepared for the next pandemic. The answer to the question, how to prepare for the next pandemic, It's important, as always in medicine, to make the right diagnosis. And I don't think we've made the right diagnosis um, because this is not just a pandemic of a virus. This was actually a synthesis of epidemics, a syndemic, 
because you had three intersecting problems. You had a virus, yes, but the virus then hit a population that had existing illnesses. So the risks of death were higher for certain populations. As I mentioned earlier, those who were older, those who had certain comorbidities, heart disease, and related disorders. So a pattern of ill health in the population led that population to be highly susceptible to bad outcomes. And then in addition to those two elements of the virus on a pattern of poor health, it wasn't even across society. There was a social gradient. So certain groups in our society were more at risk than other groups. So just to take an example, I was very fortunate. I was able to just work from home um, from the beginning of the pandemic to the present day, if I chose. I had that freedom. But the people who were running our trains or metro systems or opening our supermarkets um, or cleaning the streets, they didn't have a choice. Health workers who were on the front line, teachers who were trying to teach our children and keep our schools going, they didn't have a choice. To keep society running at some basic level in the middle of a pandemic required some groups to be out there doing what they had to do, and they were at greater risk. People who were poor, marginalised, socially excluded, were at greater risk. There was a shadow pandemic of violence against women and girls who were at greater risk. So if you're really going to understand pandemic preparedness and the response, it's not only about detecting a virus and then preventing its spread. It's also about having a healthy population. And it's also about reducing inequalities in health. So if I was um, trying to prepare for the next pandemic, I definitely want a strong public health system that can pick up new viruses. That means being able to detect pneumonias of unexplained origin and having genomic sequencing facilities all across the world so you can pick up new viruses, definitely, and building trust and cooperation between nations so that nations share information. But secondly, I want to make sure that I have universal health coverage in every country so that there is no population that doesn't have access to a basic level of adequate health care, because that's essential as part of the pandemic response. And thirdly, I would try and tackle these inequalities so I don't have marginalised, vulnerable populations who are particularly exposed to the virus. Because what you saw in this pandemic was it was no accident that the new variants that arose during the pandemic, arose in Brazil, in uh, the United Kingdom, in South Africa, because that's where the transmission was most intense. And so anywhere where you have intense transmission, you're going to create the conditions for genetic recombinations to take place. So to reduce the risk not just of the beginning of a pandemic, but the arrival of new variants, you've got to have universal health coverage and limited inequalities so that you don't allow that transmission to be so intense. So you need that three-pronged attack 
And I don't think that's a lesson that has been widely talked about at all, but it's absolutely crucial to the future. Yeah, those are some valuable insights. And again, hopefully our audience, many of whom are going to be in a position to be leaders of these different ministries of health or centers or nonprofits doing this work will pay close attention and follow these recommendations. Uh, I'm aware of your time, so I, want, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I did have several other quick questions. Sure. The first is one of the reasons we're speaking now is that you're about to celebrate the 200th anniversary of The Lancet in 2023. And it's interesting to me, there's only been 12 editors-in-chief of The Lancet uh, over those 200 years. So it's pretty amazing uh, the tenure you've had there. What do you see and hope for for the next 200 years for The Lancet? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, survival in the strange world that we have. You know, if you'd asked me even a year ago whether we would have been having a discussion about the possibility of tactical nuclear warfare in the middle of Europe, uh, I would have said, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. And yet that's what we're doing now. We're having a discussion about tactical versus strategic nuclear war in Ukraine. I mean, this is just sheer madness, but it's happening and it's very frightening. You know, the human species is a very complex organism. We have capacity for creating beautiful objects, moving images, music that can change your heart and your mind in unbelievable ways. And yet we also have the capacity for horrific destruction of our planet and each other. And it's not entirely clear which direction we choose to go. And we're doing all of this in the middle of a climate emergency, which threatens by the end of this century to um, put us on a path that will destroy our species and all other species as well at the rate we're going. So um, when I say survival, I'm not joking. It sounds a glib answer, but I'm actually quite serious. Our role at The Lancet is to draw attention to the dangers that face the human species, but also to the solutions that are available to us. We're also the species that is most ingenious, that is the most creative, and that has the possibility to solve the problems before us. But whether we have the ability to create the solutions to the problems that we are creating ourselves, this remains an open question. So I hope that The Lancet can make a small contribution to illuminating that future. Yeah, and you clearly already have. And one kind of interesting tidbit, given that you're also an aficionado of history and, and literature that I forgot to mention is that when I was doing the research on how many editors-in-chief have been at the Lancet since 1823, there have been 15 popes since 1823. So there are fewer <laughs> editors-in-chief than there are popes uh, over that I 200 didn't know years. That. So now that, now that you know, but... Uh, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, That's a, a good statistic. Yeah, we'll have to cite that as well. Um, now... Two other questions. One is, you know, you started as a physician. You've obviously had an incredible career, both in medicine and in, in publishing. Um, what is your advice for our audience as they approach their careers in health and medicine about, you know, how they can maximize their impact uh, in the ways that, that you've done? Well, um, I'm verging on being an old man now, so you should never, <laughs> you should never listen to the advice of, uh, of old men like me. Um, 
However, since you asked me, I will I will <laughs> give some. Um, I think there are two things for me that I, that I've always found very valuable in guiding me that I hope might be helpful in guiding others. The first one is never ever lose your capacity to be shocked by the injustices that you see around you. Remember when you were a child and you saw something that you didn't think was right and you you couldn't understand it and you'd say to your parents, but that's not fair, how can that be? And your parents would try and give you some explanation. But you would you thought that was wrong as a child. And then the problem is, as we grow up, we become normalized to injustice. And so we don't get angry about it. We don't get frustrated about it. We don't care about it in the same way. So never lose your capacity that you had when you were a child to be shocked by the injustices around you. Because the moment we lose that capacity, the moment we're no longer shocked by those injustices, then we've given up hope as a species. We should be fighting for each other. And then the second bit, and that comes from medicine, and that's why I love the subject I work in, is never lose your capacity to be shocked by the excitement that comes from medicine and the solutions that medicine and medical science can offer. Because medicine, I mean, for me anyway, is the most beautiful discipline because the skills it teaches you, the knowledge it gives you, the the possibility of human connection, what other discipline you can go and I'm not sure that you're allowed to do this in today's world of infection control, but in, in my day, you know, you could go and sit on the edge of a patient's bed and talk to a patient in the middle of the night and they'd tell you things about their life that they wouldn't even tell their own family. The enormous position of trust that the physician or health worker has in relation to the patient, you know, the ability to influence the individual life, the community, society, the world around you is enormous based on the science that we generate and the work that we do. So those are the two things. Never lose your capacity to be shocked. Never lose your capacity to be excited about what medicine can do to address those injustices that you see. Mm, I love that. Maintaining that passion and, and hopefully that will itself keep people who are listening to this engaged because there's a lot of reasons to be not hopeful about the future, Absolutely. but but certainly having that passion, finding those causes to, to fight for make a lot of sense. I will say one thing about your uh, caveat on your own advice saying people shouldn't listen to you because if you're a, uh, you're, because it's kind of paradoxical Age. because of all that you've achieved, they shouldn't listen to you. Uh, it reminds you of Arthur Clarke's quote, which is when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he's almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he's very probably wrong. So, luckily, you're saying you're saying a lot of things are possible. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I like that. Well, my last question for you is: there anything else you'd want to share with our audience today that I haven't asked you about? I feel like this interview could go on for hours, but uh, to, to be respectful for your time, I wanted to give it back to you. Oh, that's kind. Um, no, I mean, I I would just say. You know, one of the things that I've always tried to do is, you know, keep your mind open to new ideas. One of the things that's most exciting about working at The Lancet is opening my email in the morning and seeing the papers that have been submitted. I still get a thrill from that 30 years on. Um, the excitement of the new 
you know, it is that point that we have seven and a half billion people on this planet, and every one of those people can make a contribution to our happiness, advancing society, our health and well-being, the creativity of our species, the possibility of adding to knowledge, that is exciting. And I never lose that. It's almost a childlike excitement. You know, it's like opening your, I mean, for me, Christmas presents on Christmas morning and seeing what you're going to get. That's what it's like opening my email every morning. Don't lose that excitement, the excitement of the new, the excitement of extending the possibilities of life. How do you extend the possibilities of life? That's, I think, what drives me. And that's fortunately the world that we've chosen to live in, in the world of health and medicine. And uh, we're very privileged. I agree. And that's that's wonderful. Uh, One last sentiment on that is... um, I don't know if you keep a journal or diary, but uh, I feel if you did, yours may look similar to uh, Da Vinci's. And Walter Isaacson wrote a great, great biography of Da Vinci. And one of the things that's interesting about Da Vinci's journal is, you know, he'll be writing something or drawing a future flying helicopter or how he could make the Mona Lisa more, more lifelike. Yeah. And then in the, in the corner, he would scribble, you know, consider the woodpecker's tongue. Like, what does a woodpecker's tongue look like? So he had this natural childlike curiosity and sense of awe that he never lost yes. over the course of, of his life. Absolutely. That clearly is how he connected the dots. So That's a beautiful example, Shiv, actually. That's a gr- I didn't know that. It's a great example. It's a great book. Isaacson's Da Vinci, for sure. So, Dr. Horton, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to meet with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to share this uh, with our audience. It's great meeting you too. And uh, thanks and uh, all power to your work. Likewise. Thanks again. Take care. Take care. And with that, uh, I'm Shivilani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.